Hey, hey, everybody, welcome. It's 2024, and it's the first episode of the brand new year of the Nevin and Fred podcast. And I'm Nevin Adams, uh, the Nevin and Nevin and Fred. And of course, if I'm Nevin and I am, that means that here with me, of course, is the inimitable, the immutable, the irreplaceable, and irrepressible Mr. Fred Reich. Hey, Fred. Hey, Nevin. My goodness, that was a wonderful introduction. Um, are you sure my mom didn't write that for you? <laughs> she she might she might have. Um, but you're it's one you're deserving of. And happy um, 2024 back at you and, and to everybody. It's good to be here. Yes, it sure is. And and we've got some stuff to talk about, a little bit of carryover, if you will, from last year, but it's it's kind of new and looming on the horizon. Um uh, one of them is a court case, Fred, that you and I have uh, covered, we've talked about before, and uh, we've, we've opined as to whether or not the decision was uh, likely to be appealed or not. And as I recall, and this is uh, the Yale University 403B case, a typical excessive fee case, one of the very first that were filed by the Schlechter Law Firm back in 2016, believe that or not. Um, and it was making some of the, the standard traditional allegations about excessive fees. Too many funds, funds that are too expensive. Um, I think even multiple record keepers, but I may be wrong about that. But anyway, it's kind of the traditional litany of things that had been charged uh, against the fiduciaries of the Yale University 403B plan. Um, and it had gone on for a while, lots of motions going back and forth, that sort of thing. They had petitioned for a jury trial and got it. And I believe it's the only jury trial that we've had in this genre of cases to date. Um, so they got a jury trial. And, uh, and Fred, since I know, I know that you want to, again, uh, relish the uh, terms of the jury instruction and the results of that, I will now leave it to you to share that information again. Well, thank you. And, and, and one footnote to what you just said, Nevin. Um, we did predict that it would be appealed, and once again, we were spot on. So we, we <laughs> well, have, well we, in, in fairness, this one I think was pretty easy to predict. But we, yes, we we need to we need to get some sort of a betting line in Vegas because we've got a good record. Um, well, let me talk. Here, here's the, 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 there were a number of questions that the judge posed to the jury in the Yale case, and. And then the jury came back with answers. And it was these answers that led Nevin and me to both think that this case would be appealed. And the the, the issue of great uh, interest right now, which Nevin will get into in more detail in a minute, is the DOL has filed what's called an amicus brief. Amicus meaning friend of the court. Uh, so we go to law school to learn Latin. That's That's about it, what we got out of law school. But Hi, George. We know Amicos. Uh, okay, so what what were the questions and what were the answers, at least the ones that were relevant to today? The first question that the judge asked the jury to come back with findings on was, have the plaintiffs, meaning the participants, really the attorneys representing the participants, have the plaintiffs proven by a preponderance of the evidence, this is a civil trial, so the standard is preponderance, that the defendants, meaning the fiduciaries, breach their duty of prudence by allowing unreasonable record-keeping and administrative fees to be charged to participants in the plan. 
The jury came back, yes, we find that that was the case. The second one was, have the plaintiffs proven by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendant's breach of fiduciary duty resulted in a loss to the plan? The jury came back, yes, it resulted in a loss to the plan. Um, if you answer yes, the instruction said, the loss proved by the plaintiffs is zero. What? <laughs> how, can it, how can there be a loss and it can be zero? Um, and essentially, the, the jury instructions said, have the defendants, meaning the fiduciaries, this is yet another question, proven by a preponderance of the evidence that a fiduciary following a prudent process, and here's the magical word, could yes, have made the same decisions as to record keeping and administrative fees as the defendants. Remember that word could, because as Nevin will explain in a minute, this is a coulda, woulda case. Wait, wait spoiler, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. <laughs> when I read the decision, I, all I could think about was, you know, back in school, and this is my only alliteration for the program today, but how much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could and woodchuck would? Uh, this is all about could and would. And let me turn it over to Nevin to explain why that goofy thing I just said actually has some relevance. Well, actually, it's quite a bit of relevance because if you think about it, the mathematical possibility, would you use the word could? I mean, of course they could. Um, and the real ultimate question is, should they have? And that ultimately is, is kind of the, the issue here. And it's a common sense thing if you think about it. Now, to Fred's point, this this uh, decision, as expected, has in fact been appealed by the Schlichter Law Firm. And again, to Fred's point, coming right behind that, the Department of Labor has come in and basically said, we think this needs to be rethought. Um, and, and I'll read some of the quote from the amicus brief from there for you. It says, quote, after the jury found that defendants breached ERISA's duty of prudence and that plaintiff's ERISA plan incurred a loss, the district court correctly required defendants, that's the uh, fiduciary defendants, to prove that their breach did not cause losses to the plan. But then they turned around and said, but the court erroneously instructed the jury as to how defendants could meet that burden. Specifically, they say the jury instruction allowed defendants to escape liability if they proved that a fiduciary following a prudent process could have made the same decisions as to record keeping and administrative fees that defendants made, rather than require, as the plaintiffs had urged, that the jury determine whether a prudent fiduciary would, more likely than not, have done so. Um, and in that, to Fred's point, that ends up being kind of the issue of the case. Um, it, it really gets down to the wording that was given to the juries. And I think, again, the wording that the juries are given in those instructions is very important. They're trying to follow instructions. They're being very careful to follow the instructions the judge uh, provided. And and again, what the Labor Department says is, is, as things stand as a result, this standard was, quote, substantially different and far more lenient standard, one that allowed the jury to absolve the defendants, quote, merely by finding that a fiduciary following a prudent process by some distinct possibility, quote, could have agreed to the same record-keeping fees that defendants did. The district of courts could have standard, not only as contrary to case law, 
it is antithetical to ERISA's trust law roots and protective purposes. So there you have it. Yeah. It, well, it was a could have instead of a should have. So Yeah, and it starts off, I mean you have to there has to be a breach. And and I'm not talking about the Yale case. Now I'm gonna create a simple example that's not Yale. But let's say the committee never met. Let's say the committee never reviewed the investments in the plan and they were too expensive and they never reviewed the uh, record-keeping fees and they were also expensive. Maybe not too expensive. We'll come back to two in a moment. But in both cases, they were expensive. And the failure to meet was a fiduciary breach. The failure to evaluate or monitor investments that results from the failure to meet. Uh, was a fiduciary breach. So the plaintiffs in, in my hypothetical would prove a fiduciary breach, and then they would show that, uh, that, that there were losses. That is that because they didn't meet, too much was paid. Then, so that, that's what the plaintiffs, the participants, have to prove. But then the defendants, the planned fiduciaries, could come back and say, hey, wait a second, um, under the could-have standard, uh, we here's evidence that some other planned fiduciary somewhere could have made this decision. Uh, and therefore, we've offset the proof of the plaintiffs and we don't owe anything. That's what the jury decided, more or less, when they came back with no damages because they decided, wow, somebody else out there in, prudently could have made a decision to select that record keeper at that cost and, and, and so on. Um, but then, and that's what the court said. The court gave that instruction. Um, but then it went up on a, on appeal where it is now and the Department of Labor is saying, well, wait a second, that, no, no, no. What you're supposed to look at from the DOL's perspective, and they cite some cases that agree, is that, that a prudent fiduciary more likely than not would have made a different decision. That is, they wouldn't have agreed to those investments or those expenses. Um, and another quote from the DOL's brief, in addition to what Nevin quoted, um, is <laughs> kind of interesting. And again, only a lawyer or a lawyer's mother could love a, you know, what, 30 pages almost of discussing would versus could. But at one point, page 15, um, the, the DOL says in their brief, the distinction between could and would is both real and legally significant. It is the difference between what is merely possible, that's could, it's possible, versus what is probable, that's would. And so the, the, the DOL is arguing that going forward, the, if it's the defense would have to prove, the fiduciaries would have to prove that, that, a prudent, that a fiduciary engaging in a prudent process would have made the same decision as in the case we're talking about, as the Yale fiduciaries made. So <clears throat> while this is, uh, in a sense, a lot of legalese, it is also a big part of my life. It's the way lawyers talk and think, and Nevin and I are lawyers. Um, so, it, but it's real in the sense that I think in a, working with plan committees and plan fiduciaries, uh, advisors and other service providers should you know, first off, encourage them to engage in, in regular prudent processes to monitor investments and expenses and of service providers and expenses of investments. The two main sources of litigation are 
one, you had the wrong share class. You had an overly expensive share class of the funds in your plan. And two, uh, you paid the record keepers too much money, more than they were entitled to under a reasonable compensation standard. And that often results from uh, revenue sharing from the investment. So the two are actually in many ways connected at the hip. Uh, and both of those, the issue that you should be talking with plan committees and fiduciaries about is what would a prudent fiduciary, getting all of this information in front of them, evaluating it in the best interest of the participants, that is with the duty of prudence and loyalty to the participants, what decision would a prudent fiduciary make? Because that, if the DOL succeeds in this case, will be the standard by which they're measured. And so, Nevin, I don't know if you will, what you want to add to that. I'll just I'll close with how I closed when I wrote up the case. Um, so the Labor Department and the plaintiffs are arguing that the current standard should have been would have, not could have. How's that? <laughs> I just hope somebody listens to all this. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, that's good. Well, we'll see what happens with that. It seems uh, under the results that came out from the jury instructions, it seems pretty likely to me that there's going to be another round of this in court, whether it might get settled before it goes anywhere or not. But um, but we'll see. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. Yeah, so, this, is, this is an appeal to the Second Circuit in New York. So we're probably going to have a pretty sophisticated group of circuit judges looking at it. Um, now, now, that sounds like regional bias to me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> speaking speaking of regional bias, we've got another set of cases, I think five to date, although I've only seen four of them. Um, cases involving major employers being uh, sued, I think almost, I think exclusively, although again, I could be wrong on this, uh, in the state of California, both either the Northern or the Southern District, Courts in California uh, by a group, a pair of attorneys uh, out of California, Pasadena, as I recall, um, that are uh, suing uh, on behalf of participants. They're basically claiming a fiduciary breach, saying that the uh, planned fiduciaries breach their fiduciary duty by offsetting employer contributions uh, with forfeitures, balances and stating that that was a decision not in the best interest of participants. Um, these are major employers. I think the plan document provisions are probably pretty standard. And as I recall, they all allow for the forfeitures to be offset for this purpose. But the bone of potential contention here seems to be that it was their discretion to do so, not a requirement. To do so. In other words, the plan fiduciaries uh, had the discretion to offset company contributions with forfeited balances, but were not required to do so. And in fact, could have done other things with that money. They could have, for instance, reallocated those forfeited balances to participants still in the plan. Um, and the challenge, I suppose, on that is that their decision not to offset the contributions was not necessarily in the best interest of participants. What do you think, Fred? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting issue. As far as I know, it's never come up before. The, um, maybe to create a hypothetical that we can talk about, uh, let's say there's a plan document that says forfeitures can be used as follows. Uh, 
forfeitures can offset employer contributions, or forfeitures can be allocated to participants, or forfeitures can pay plan expenses, or uh, forfeitures can be used to reinstate accounts of they're forfeited, but somebody comes back before they incur a break in service. Uh, so you have all those ors. Who makes that decision? Um, I mean, thinking through that, the person is probably the 316 administrative fiduciary for the plan, typically the plan committee, but but it could be somebody else. Um, so that is a that is a fiduciary making a decision given a range of choices by the plan document. And before I go beyond that, Nevin, let me just point out that um, while I think because of prototype, prototype plan documents and the like, uh, and the fact that plan documents are essentially free now, uh, nobody pays for them anymore unless it's a very big plan with an individually designed document. Um, people regard them as pre-printed forms. You just buy it and you sort of plug and play the plan document. And the, anything that matters is in the adoption agreement. The rest of it is just a form. Well, these these cases say that that ain't so. Um, the plan and document really matters. And I, I think by and large, what we've done over the years, and by we, I mean the retirement plan community, is we sort of, we, the plan documents have all been designed to uh, comply with Internal Revenue Code qualification and prohibited transaction provisions. And... So they're, they're essentially IRS Internal Revenue Code documents. But when litigation occurs, it's typically Title I of ERISA. By the way, the Internal Revenue Code provisions that relate to ERISA are called Title II of ERISA. But Title I is the Department of Labor, Fiduciary Standard, Duty of Loyalty, uh, you know, all those things that we think of as being within the Department of Labor's province. Uh, so... This is a fiduciary issue. This is a Title I issue inside a Title II plan document. <laughs> and it's a good lesson that we can't treat them as forms and that we also have to think about them from a fiduciary perspective in terms of the decisions that, that the document requires the fiduciaries to make. So uh, <clears throat> somewhere in that hypothetical I just created, Nevin, um, you know, the fiduciaries have to make a decision. And at the heart of the cases is, can that decision be made in the best interest of the employer? Can it be made in the best interest of the employees? Or not can, but should. Uh, or, and, and what is in the employee's best interest? But let me bounce it back to you, because you had some early reactions on this, and you followed it pretty closely along the way, Devin. <laughs> well, as I told you, my first reaction was, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> It was, it just felt, I don't know. Of course, this is how people, when the first excessive fees suits came out uh, from the Schlichter firm, that was a reaction of a lot of people in the industry, right? Because what, what he was challenging at the time was pretty firmly ensconced, embedded approach to plan design, fund selection, that kind of stuff. And so there was a sense from people who were very comfortable with the way things have always been of saying, this is, this is crazy. Well, turns out, not so crazy. And the same thing, I, I think, on this forfeitures thing. And as I said, my, my initial reaction was, um, was very dismissive. Um, it was a real head-scratcher for me. And then I began seeing a number of reputable law firms put out what amounted to basically 
you know, there might be something here. And you should probably take a look at your plan document. And I think overall, the counsel coming from these is like, look, out of an abundance of caution, you might want to just make sure that you're, you know, don't don't put it in discretionary terms. Say this is how forfeitures will be used. And basically sort of take it out of that point. Not that the, the plan sponsors who did this weren't with, well within their rights to do it. Not that the courts won't throw it out, maybe have the same incredulous reaction to this that I've had, but just, you know, again, let's just remove the doubt. Let's just, you know, take take the discretion out. Why do you want to leave it as an option? If you want to offset company contributions, just do it and say you're going to do it and be done with it. Um, but I think, again, uh, there there's these number of cases that are out there. I think only five. They're all major employers. Um, I think the only one I've seen so far respond to this is Clorox has uh, filed a, uh, a motion to dismiss. Again, pretty common as we've talked about these things for a suit to be filed. And then for some period after that, the defendants will almost routinely file a motion to dismiss for a failure to state a claim. And in point of fact, I think the Clorox uh, motion to do just that does basically say not only will we within our rights to do it, but the people who are bringing suit here have suffered no harm. They have not received a reduction in benefits because we did this with the forfeitures as opposed to, let's say, maybe reallocating those forfeitures or uh, that it would have changed the company contribution. So um, remains to be seen. Again, this is a uh, this is still very much in play, uh, but it does look like there is an attempt by this law firm to run this up against a number of firms. And so perhaps, again, just like the excessive fee suits, um, what we're going to see is a, uh, a series of these lawsuits basically making identical claims because the fact patterns are very similar. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, knowing your interest in music, Nevin, uh, I think this is about the little old law firm from Pasadena. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, but no, I, you know, I agree first with, you know, what you're saying, the, the, the really safe thing to do now. And if I were a third party administrator that had a plan document, or, or if I were a record keeper with a plan document and of course a plan sponsor, uh, I would go look at the document right now and see what it says. If the document says all of the forfeitures in this plan uh, have to be used to pay expenses or allocated to participants, you better not be offsetting employer contributions. On the other hand, if it says that it could be used for employer contributions to offset, then I would go talk to the employer and say, is this, you know, if this is what you're going to do always into the future, then we better amend your plan to say that that's how the forfeitures are going to be used. Uh, I mean, there are some other issues here too. If you think about it, um, if, the forfeitures are used to offset the plan contribution. And if the contribution is hardwired, like the plan sponsor owes a 5% contribution uh, and, and then it's used to offset, then probably there's an argument that, that the plan sponsor owed the full 5% and plan, the fiduciaries use plan assets to, to reduce the liability of the plan sponsor. I'm saying an argument. I'm not taking sides on this, but I, I think we're looking at something brand new that's been laying there all along and all of a sudden it's sprung to life in a bad way. 
And um, on the other hand, if it says the plan contributions are discretionary, then the employer could say, here's how much I'm going to contribute. And then you fiduciaries decide what you're going to do with the forfeitures. Then that argument that the little law firm from Pasadena is making goes away. I, I think it goes away. Uh, but it is. it seems like it is a fiduciary decision. And, and the general rule is that they have to be made in the best interest of the participants. Um, but go back, look at all your plan documents and have that discussion about what you want. What does the employer want? Because the employer can amend the design of a plan document in its own best interest. It's the administration of the plan and the investment of the plan that has to be done at a fiduciary level. So, geez, people, you know, go back, look at the plan documents, um, figure out what they say now. For example, if they say it'll always go to the participants, then you probably don't have an issue as long as it's being administered that way. If it says only offset contributions, probably don't have an issue as long as it's being administered that way. But if it's like that hypothetical Nevin and I were talking about, then you might want to think about taking a safe position, which is amending the document to hardwire one kind of an outcome or another. Yeah, and the only cautionary note there, as we've seen in some of the excessive fee cases, is if you had a document that said one thing and you amend it to say something else, then somebody's going to say, see, you knew it was a problem. That's why you did it. So, no, oh, I agree. You know, you always debate that anytime you're making a change to a plan. Like if you, uh, what we're starting to see there, just as an aside, Devin, is that some plaintiff's attorneys are now looking to see if a plan did an RFP. And then they're looking at the responses to the RFP. Like, there's a response to the RFP says, oh, you're way overpaying for your investments. You can get much cheaper investments. <laughs> and then they're using that to show a fiduciary breach by the plan sponsor. Uh, so anytime there's an event that creates new information that a, that a plaintiff's attorney can look at, you really do debate as an attorney, you know, how, how do you advise the plan sponsor on this? Because the benefit of amending it is you cut it off prospectively. So 2023, last year, will be the last time it was an issue. If you amend it this year, 2024, you know, three, six years down the line, the statute of limitations is run and you only have clean years that are still open for potential litigation or for uh, IRS or DOL audits or investigations. So, yeah, I, in this particular case, Nevin, I think if I were advising in a client, a hypothetical client, I would say amend. I, I I, notwithstanding what you just said. <laughs> yeah, I think I would go there now. <laughs> Nicely put. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to say you're wrong, Nevin, but... <laughs> Nevin, but I would always give right. Advice. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, y'all y'all take that for what it's worth. As I said, I've, I have a hard time still even though you know, I've tried to wrap my head around the arguments and I sort of get where it's coming from. And I, I'll tell you what, I will, I will credit these attorneys for stumbling across something that's, you know, kind of longstanding and embedded, but it certainly is a unique angle. Um, and so you give, you give, you know, the devil is due for, um, for creativity if, if nothing else. But, um, but to your point, Fred, it's like one. It's one of those things. It's like if you don't have to, if you don't have to make a decision, why, why create the need to make a decision and have a formal discussion and all that kind of stuff? Just take it out of your hands and be done with it. 
That's probably Lena. And paying attention to your documents and being careful and looking to things that are clean. What better way to start out 2024, huh, Fred? Out with the old and with the new. I'm with you on that one, Devin. All right. Well, hey, bud, it's been um, it's been a great start to what has been a great year. We are now, believe it or not, we're in our fourth season, Fred. Believe it or not, just pretty wow. incredible. Yeah. Uh, oh, and before I get off, we want to remind everybody, we are going to be live and in person at the NAPA 401k Summit in Nashville, Tennessee, April 7th through the 9th. We're actually going to be on the afternoon of the 8th, so you want to mark your calendars now. And if you're not registered, you want to go ahead and sign up. Uh, there are multiple hotels to choose from. The issue we've had before is it's not a problem getting a room. It's just maybe a problem getting a room at the hotel that comports with your particular honors program or corporate embrace. Uh, in any event, go ahead and make those reservations now. You don't want to miss this all in Nashville. Yeah. yeah, you got it. All right, everybody have a great rest of your week. Welcome to 2024.